1: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
3: 18 plus.
1: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel, and a sitting state Supreme Court justice.
2: Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of April 13th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss Jordan Spieth, just 21 years of age and his remarkable coming of age amid the azaleas and dogwoods in full bloom at the historic Augusta National Golf Club at the Masters. Then we will welcome a couple of very distinguished guests. First, we'll talk with the man who's pretty much responsible for creating the multi-billion dollar basketball sneaker industry, and he will admit its resultant ills, Sonny Vaccaro. He's the subject of a compelling new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Soul Man. Finally, with the National Hockey League playoffs upon us, we are very excited to welcome to Slate's New York Studios, none other than the Stanley Cup itself, Speaking on behalf of the Cup, will be the keeper of the Cup, Philip Pritchard, the curator of the Hockey Hall of Fame. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll bat around that 7-hour, 19-inning, 628 pitch, they shoot horses, don't they, baseball game between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. It was, of course, a metaphor for life. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com plus hangupplus and get access to this and other podcast bonus segments you can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangup plus it's a three city panelist lineup this week i'm in washington i'm the author of the book word freak which i mentioned so that i can plug the fact that after many years word freak is finally an audiobook it's available at audible.com i have some free copies to distribute so we'll need to figure out a way to do that in the coming weeks our host slate's executive editor josh levine is in chicago where he's doing what's known in the business as reporting
4: hi josh Hi, are you sitting in my chair? I'm sitting in your chair. Where are you sitting? I'm under the covers because it sounds better, according to a producer who's probably playing a prank on me. (laughs) I think he probably is. Um, But why are you in my chair? What's wrong with your chair?
2: Well, I sit in this chair because Mike Volo likes to look at me, but then it turns out that Mike Volo's not even in the room. I'm all by myself. It also
0: turns out Mike Volo doesn't really like to look at you. He likes (laughs) to look at Josh. Who recorded the audio for your audio (laughs) book?
2: Some guy. They yeah. wouldn't let me do it. Was it
0: Jim Dal? Did he do all the some voices? Actor, <laughs> some actor.
2: Some who's, who's, actor uh, who's, uh, whose influences include the Dalai Lama, according to his website. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. When you said didn't let you do it, did you try? Did you I petition did. for that? I did. And they were like, no, we want to sell copies? What was their counterargument? I think that
2: was it. Nobody wants to listen to you <laughs> for 19 hours. I think that's I
0: think if you listen to all the hang-ups, you get that effect.
2: Uh, you You're doing a great uh, job you
0: know, of selling your know?
4: audiobook,
2: Stefan.
0: Keep
4: it up. What do I know?
1: How many, how
0: many know? years have we been doing this? Three, three, four years? Five. Five years? All right. We barely ever miss a week, so let's call it 250 shows, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're about, I don't know, an hour? That's it. Most of them aren't an hour. Mm-hmm. Are they? Eh, 200. Close. Yeah, there now. Uh, let's call it two hundred fifty hours. Let's call it two hundred forty because it divides by three. That's eighty hours. Now, mm-hmm. how eighty hours are you talking? Is every hang up and listen? How
2: long's your audio book to listen to? They're about fifteen, sixteen hours. There you go. They should let you, you... throw in seventeen years of NPR. Yeah, yeah. At four minutes. Do you think you've talked more million, on? A year?
0: Do you think you talked more on seventeen? Let's do the math. How how <laughs> seventeen years of NPR at four <laughs> minutes? How long do you? How many? Uh,
2: I figure, let's average it out to 40 a
0: year. Yeah. All right. So that would be uh, uh, 680 minutes. Is that Mm -hmm. right?
2: Hmm. Interesting. 40 a year. Yeah. 40 times 4, 160 a year, 160 times 17. Oh, 160 minutes. 160 times 17. Yeah.
4: Okay. So that's... Uh, If we do this for 200 years then we will have achieved the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 Hours of Mastery, so we'll finally be good at podcasting. That's when I'll be
2: able to record my next audiobook. 10,000 Hours of
4: Talking Publicly before I'm allowed
2: to. I did record the last audiobook, so there's that. That was uh, Mike Pesca. He's the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. He's in New York. He's preparing for the arrival of Lord Stanley's chalice. You got a big chair ready there, Mike? Large headphones? Uh, (laughs) That's right, yes. He He likes earbuds, cup butts, yeah.
0: I'd like to My first question for the cup is Do you ever wear a cup?
2: <laughs> it's an excellent question. Yeah, we'll see what he says. He'll storm off. Right. Nine days ago, Jordan Spieth was just another bro screaming at the refs during the NCAA Final Four. Terrible calls on both ends. Those were perfect no calls, he tweeted during the Wisconsin Kentucky game. Afterward, he wrote Can't wait for Monday night. Whiskey versus Dookies. Both teams are so efficient. This weekend, no one was more efficient than Spieth himself. Two years after turning pro during his sophomore year at the University of Texas, the 21-year-old Spieth became the second youngest Masters winner ever. Tiger Woods was five months younger when he won in 1997. He also became the first wire-to-wire winner of the Masters since 1976 and the first to lead by at least three shots from the first round on since 1941. He has no weaknesses, said Phil Mickelson, who tied for second, his 10th time, as a runner up in a major, no weaknesses. He's kind of like you, Josh. What do you make of Jordan Spieth and his victory
4: narratively, golfily, however? I think he's probably a little bit shorter than me, but um, what he does remind me of is a piece that Tommy Craggs wrote in 2009 on Stephen Curry when Curry was in college at Davidson. He wrote that Curry was not an otherworldly specimen like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, and Elgin Baylor, who crack open basketball's possibilities and push the game to new dimensions. Um, he's a scorer who excels within the game's given parameters, who masters its angles rather than invents new ones. And so that's where I think the comparison to Tiger Woods is interesting, because I think he's different than Tiger um, in two ways. Number one, he's, I think, more of a golfer's golfer. He doesn't um, kind of destroy the course in such a way that you want to change the yardage like they did with Tiger Woods. When Tiger won his first Masters, Jesper Parnovic said if they don't make him hit from 50 yards back, he's going to win 20 in a row. Nobody's saying that about Jordan Spieth. Um, Number two, he is not a larger-than-life personality. He is someone who I think other golfers respect and other golf fans will love because he embodies all of the characteristics that they like in golfers. He seems like very restrained and polite and calls everyone sir and idolizes Ben Crenshaw. And, you know, who among us really cares about Ben Crenshaw? That might mean something to the guy in the pro shop, but he's not somebody who I think is gonna bring in new fans to the game. He's not gonna expand its reach and at a time when golf is diminishing, in popularity i think that's worth mentioning
0: i think golf is happy with its uh, status i mean i'm sure there's someone who wants to grow the game but they're unwilling to change things that's the whole appeal of golf and so you know but for the tiger blip golf has always been golf now my take on spieth is sure he's good but you know he's ruining college golf he was, what, one and done at Texas? Did he stay two one and years? Done? I blame Calipari. This is terrible for the pros and terrible for the amateurs. So, right, he's like, he's a golfer's golfer. They didn't want to change the game like after Tiger won. Uh, okay, what else? What else
2: about Tiger made you want to change, maybe made them want to change the game?
0: Okay, I'm just asking. I'm just asking the questions.
2: The the other factor is that he's American, and columnists and commentators all seem to be latching on to that on Sunday night and, uh, again, on Monday in the morning newspapers. Uh, Thomas Boswell of the Washington Post brought that up, and he was actually relatively restrained. It was definitely a coronation, but he noted that other golfers that have won a major by the age of 22, Gene Sarazen, Tiger Woods, Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, Rory McIlroy, Jack Nicklaus, Seve Ballesteros not an ironclad prediction of greatness, but You know the media tends to get a little bit frothed up, particularly in golf, when someone young and successful comes along. But in this case, it seems like a lot of the predictors are there for Jordan Spieth. Well, they were so desirous that this is not just an
0: amazing performance. And sure, he came in second uh, last time, so he obviously has a lot of potential, but the announcers were talking about the dawn of the Jordan Spieth era and they were talking about, for years to come, the same stuff they were talking about with Rory, the same stuff they were, well, more or intimating that could be possible with Bubba. So I think this is a way that Tiger Woods, you know, casts a shadow over the whole sport that for years it was assumed that, you know, the nature of golf would be that the best golf will will rise one weekend. But there's not going to be, I mean, someone's going to win the, you know, money award and the points award for the year. Well, this is actually predated FedEx Cup, but someone's going to be the golfer of the year. But it's not, you know, ordained that this guy will be the ever going in as the odds-on favorite to win the tournament, and Tiger changed all that. And I still think uh, the golf world is, you know, in the mindset of uh, the next great golfer will do something Tiger-esque, will be the odds-on favorite to win different tournaments. And that is never going to happen again, I don't think. And I don't think it's going to happen with Tiger again.
4: Well, the thing that Spieth could do that Tiger didn't, um, through kind of no faults of his own, it's because Tiger was so good, is have a rivalry like Nicholas had with Watson, for example. You know, when Tiger had all these great duels at the majors, they were always with Bob May and Chris DeMarco and Y.E. Yang, um, you know, guys who played the part of foil, who um, their only... Role I think, historically, was to be the guy who happened to be going against Tiger that year, that day. And it was always whether Tiger succeeded or failed. Um, but with Spieth, and the fact that McElroy is still the number one golfer, and I think we shouldn't get too carried away with this one result. I think that McElroy has, you know, a much longer resume and is still very young. I think we could see... A rivalry there that Tiger never had in his prime and we can blame Phil Mickelson for that or we can blame you know every other competitor but you know at least since I've been alive really we haven't that that hasn't really been a part of golf just tuning into a major and seeing the two best players dueling in the final round. Rory McIlroy is not the. Uh, he just doesn't
0: seem to be the rival or the uh, the number one that everyone's gunning for that Tiger was. Rory's not even the top ranked Rory in the FedEx standings. That'd be Rory Sabatini at sixty nine. McElroy's at eighty nine. Oh come on. <laughs> <laughs> I go by the yeah. FedEx standings.
2: Come on. That come on. is. I mean, the, cheap. the gamblers. You meant, you mentioned the betting lines, Mike, and and the rally was in Vegas. It was Rory and Spieth. Uh, who were the, the, the favorites, and a lot of money was on Spieth, apparently. Um, so the golf well, he was leading at, after
4: 54 holes last year at age
2: 20. Right, right. And he's finished first and second in, in 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 all four previous tournaments that he played coming up to the Masters. His resume is for real. This is not fluky. Um, I'm still amazed when when golfers dominate. I was I've been amazed for twenty years with Tiger dominating the way he dominated because the difference in the differences in golf are so thin um in terms of hitting shots and distance and and consistency, you know, cause it's not like Spieth is hitting shots that no one else is capable of hitting. But as Mickelson said, he hits all his shots properly. And that's the, the mental combined with the physical. And when you get to the level that these guys are at, it's remarkable that someone can have a distinguishable advantage.
4: And speaking of the mental and the physical, I mean, Tiger Woods continues to be just so fascinating to me. Like I cannot take my, eyes off of that guy. It's just a combination of, you know, well, like the car crash that kind of started his his whole uh, downfall. But you just cannot look away from this guy. When he hit the shot on the, I think it was the ninth hole where he hit the tree root and started shaking his wrist. And then after the round, he claimed that like a bone popped out of his wrist, which just clearly cannot be true. (laughs) And then he just like popped it back in and continued on his way i mean this guy just could not be more entertaining um and you know we were talking two three months ago you know with him going off the tour that maybe he was done that he had the yips when he was chipping and nobody had come back from that then he comes back and on saturday um you know has an amazing beginning of his round at least gets into the third to last group going into sunday Um, This guy just needs to continue to exist, is my point, because he just makes everything so much more fun, whether you're rooting for or against him. It's just so fantastic.
2: And he also helps the sport of golf. I mean, Saturday's television ratings on CBS were up like 50% over last year, highest since 2011. Um, So if you want to have a Palmer-Nicholas rivalry for the future um, between Spieth and McElroy, it's going to be helpful to have Tiger stick around for a few more years while that becomes sort of solidified, while people start to care about these two younger players in a, in a sort of transcendent way.
0: Before the tournament, I said success for Tiger would be anywhere under par, just based on the fact that I think last year, somewhere around a dozen, maybe seven people were under par last year, 13 a year before. It was really easy, uh, not for me, but for great golfers. Augusta played a lot easier. I think the uh, greens were, the, they didn't use this suck vac thing. Tiger talks about, this is so funny. You know, they always they always uh, talk about the glory and the majesty and the quiet of Augusta but tiger is very critical because when you go out onto the greens you can't hear the vvv, which is the machines that suck the moisture off the greens which he says you know makes it harder and i guess the people who love hard golf enjoy but anyway tiger was under par i always scroll down to the uh okay there's there's number 1 how far down's tiger and if there is a minus next to his name it's just inherently more exciting and remember you know it was hit a bad 2014 terrible tournament phoenix open 2013 he was the best golfer in the world and he's not that old and he's done it before and he has the mental makeup so
2: there's no reason to think that he's not going to be in the mix. I agree. You mentioned Ben Crenshaw. You know Ben Crenshaw played in this Masters. Former Masters champions get lifetime exemptions they can play every year. Um, Crenshaw's 63. He shot 91-85 in the first two rounds which got me to googling worst rounds in the Masters and how Augusta handles them. Two things. Um, Billy Casper shot 106 in 2005 at age like 70-something. He didn't turn in his scorecard, so it's not the worst nah. round in Masters history. And earlier, Hootie Johnson, the Augusta chairman, yeah. former Augusta chairman, he wrote a letter to three former champions in 2002 asking them not to play anymore. Yeah. Great story in the uh, golf world about that fucking augusta
4: was it because they had uh, become women is that why he didn't want them to show up (laughs) i believe in funding the rebels who are
2: fighting the hooties just so you know all right hang up and listen as part of the panoply network here's a word from one of our sister podcasts enjoy hey this is brian koppelman host of the podcast the moment i am thrilled that i've been able to bring the podcast here to slate What an exciting thing this is. I'm I'm so glad to join the great lineup of podcast hosts here. On the newest episode of The Moment is superstar chef and restaurateur David Chang. In general these days, I want like mastery or something. I want to taste something where I can't get anywhere else except that location. You can subscribe to The Moment at iTunes.com slash The Moment or find us at Slate.com slash The Moment. I hope you'll tune in. In the mid-1970s, a middle school teacher from Pittsburgh named Sonny Vaccaro managed to land a meeting with an upstart running shoe company in Beaverton, Oregon, named Nike. The shoe executives weren't interested in Vaccaro's prototype for a basketball sandal, but he also ran a summer high school basketball tournament called the Round Ball Classic, and a Nike executive asked Vaccaro if he could help the company get into the basketball business.
3: I looked him in the eye and I said, you want to get a ball in college basketball? pay the coaches. We'll give free shoes to all the teams and the
2: kids will wear their shoes. That was Sonny Vicaro in a scene from the documentary Soul Man, directed by John Weinbach and Dan Marks. It's the latest ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. It rolled out last week in installments on the Grantland website. It debuts in full on ESPN this Thursday, April 16th at 9 p.m. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show from Los Angeles, John Paul Vincent Vicaro. Hiya, Sonny.
3: Good morning. Good evening, uh... Good everything. I'm a very thank happy guy everybody. today. So glad. Uh, to thank
2: you. you for doing this. Sonny, we've spoken a bunch of times over the years from when you were still working in the shoe business, first for Nike, then Adidas and Reebok, to more recently when you've become one of the more prominent forces in opposition to the NCAA and the Shamature basketball system. Before we get into that, though, I'd like you to describe the landscape of high school and college basketball when you showed up at Nike's offices in the 1970s.
3: There was no existence of uh, any acknowledgement of the high school basketball other than the community you played for and winning a state championship in your specific state. Uh, there were no summer leagues. There were no AAU teams. Uh, high school basketball was relatively a, a, a small-town operation. That's why we react so easily to the Indiana high school team, Milan, uh, who won a state championship because that's sort of like embedded itself in the American psyche. Well, we've way beyond that now.
2: What did, you, what did you see the potential there? I mean, did you see something evolving that could become national in your little round ball classic?
3: Yeah, I, I did. I used to take kids around to a tournament about 60 miles from Pittsburgh, the Sharon Hoyle tournament, where the best kids, after the season would be over, after you won your state championship or participated, people would get these teams, and they would throw the precursor to an AAU team. And uh, would go to Sharon, and kids would come in from you know from almost almost west enough from Chicago, definitely Indiana, Buffalo, New York, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and all over Ohio. And there'd be hundreds of teams. And I used to take kids there from Pittsburgh, and that's sort of what you know got me going. I, I was not a basketball player; I was just someone um, who got a scholarship to Youngstown State by helping them recruit because I got injured playing football. So that story being told, that was the first of what AAU. You know, post high school season basketball was. And that's how it started. And why did I think it'd be big? Because that little Jim and Sharon used to have hundreds of college coaches come, and then that evolved into the Pittsburgh, you know, the Dapper Dan Ron Classic in 1964
4: or 65. That's how it happened. So before Michael Jordan, Sonny, who would you say is the first player from that time, from that? Summer scene that you made a connection with that was sort of the proof of concept that you were a guy who could make this work, make this kind of connection, summer basketball work.
3: Well, if you're going before Michael, then you are mean anything from '84 to the '60s, uh, to the great, the best high school player, at least notoriety in that interim, that that time from the the '65 Dan until you know Michael. Was, was a couple kids in 77 or 78, uh, Albert King, Eugene Banks, Magic Johnson, and Wayne McCoy. That's what, you know, that's what evolved into the, the high school player now becoming a star in the public size. But more before that, obviously, was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he played at you know, Power High School. He was the one young man that I wanted to get. He was Lou Alcindor then for history. And he was one guy that I wanted to get for the Dapper Dan who I thought would help sell tickets. He didn't come, but we survived Kareem or you know, uh, not playing and made it the best high school game in America. So there were a number. By the time I went to Nike, high school basketball was evolving into a cult situation. And New York City and Philadelphia ran the world. I mean, they used to get kids out of those areas that were public names, not just, you know, personal names in a community.
0: What ethical, de- what ethical decisions or dilemmas did you face back then?
3: Well, I don't know if I had decisions. I mean, I had my feelings. I, I, there was never a decision about anything. I just did things. Uh, so that's a different statement. Uh, and I was free to do things because there was no one doing anything. So if my idea sounded good and eventually it did to a corporation like Nike and then other things... Uh, they evolved. They happened. Uh, and I was the only guy. I mean, uh, this is factual, and not that there weren't hundreds and hundreds of good people who coached their teams and 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 helped their kids and did you know and they they went to tournaments like the Sharon tournament. But I, I don't know. I'm a freak of nature. I just felt there was other opportunities on this particular sport that was never touched before.
2: In the movie, in Soul Man, you described telling Nike executives something very simple about how to get into college basketball. And this was sort of the, the first idea that you had, which was pay the coaches, give them the shoes, get these kids to become sort of billboards for you. Was it that conscious for you?
3: Well, well, that was—I mean—it was a no-brainer for me because I evolved through that, and I now—I'm in my thirties now. Because when I started the Dapper Dan, I was 24 years old, so I went through 13 years of dealing on that level. The game was unbelievably successful. I did some camps in the, the Seven Springs Mountain Resorts in Pennsylvania, where these kids would come to. I was doing business, you know, and, and, and making whatever name I was making for myself because of the, the popularity of what these high school kids, because they evolved into going to colleges. They evolved into being All-Americans, and they also evolved into being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which I thought in the 70s was the greatest thing you could do for anybody, be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and that sold shoes. So saying that you wanted to get into the college game, well, everyone was buying shoes from Converse. It was the biggest, biggest thing in the world. That if anybody had Monopoly, Converse did And I told Phil and and Rob Strasser that basically, well, pay the guys because they weren't making a lot of money and the kids will wear the shoes. So that's the whole evolvement, the evolution of of all this pay, colleges, coaches, individuals.
4: And I'm sure that we'll get back uh, to that point, Sonny, but I wanted to ask about Jordan. And would you say that the most important factor in having him sign with Nike when you were there was the fact, the vision of giving him his own signature shoe?
3: Well, I think the most important thing in marketing for an individual that ever happened, ever will happen, was Michael Jordan getting a signature shoe in 1984 from Nike. And this has never been done before. No one ever had a signature, whether you were a Hollywood movie star, whether you were the, the father in a backyard with your children. You remember all those commercials in the 60s and 70s. It was, they were basically, look how nice you know America is. Well, this was completely different. First of all, you had a, a, a black athlete who wasn't like singularly known as he is today. He was a great player at North Carolina, but very disguised. Now Phil and Rob and Nike is going to say, okay, we're going to give you a shoe that's going to em- you know, be emblematic of you and who you are. And that, that changed the world. There's two or three, in my opinion, things that changed the world in, in, in marketing. And Jordan was the first. I People don't want to remember or people don't want to talk about it. But we all know that Magic Johnson and Julia Serving and, and you know, kids like this in the, in the 70s uh, prior to Michael were just as, you know, you know, photogenic, just as brilliant. And they used to just work for Converse and get $100,000 a year, which was nice. But no one knew who the hell they were on a marketing thing. Jordan changed the world.
0: You know, it's funny, and I'm sure you've thought about this, you know, basketball, the sneakers are really the only piece of equipment and the ball, but there's one ball and you could use it. Five different teams come and share the same ball. So on the one hand, you could say it's odd that basketball would be driving this engine. Every other sport is all this other equipment. But of course, you can't wear cleats walking around. You can't wear hockey skates. And another thing that Jordan did, and I don't know if you think that Jordan did it, but pre-Jordan, people didn't wear basketball shoes just in their everyday life. Then it became a thing. Now, did you did you think that that was possible? Did you chart out a strategy for that happening? It seems when you, every time you look back, whatever has happened always seems like it was inevitable that was going to happen. But it does seem to me that there are a lot of things that might not have happened or might not seem inevitable that came to pass.
3: Well, I think I thought that was going to happen because of my high school camps and my all-star game, because at my camps, the, the kids who went there used to come and they'd wear their shoes differently. And I'll never forget this. One young guy and I, you know, a kid, just a kid of camp, and he said, Mr. Vicaro, why don't they make shoes like this? And then they were basically, you know, there was like sandals. And what I thought would happen, and I did explain this at that time, not the first time around, but the Michael thing, I said, you know, to feel about the early 80s, Michael wasn't on top you. I said, what we have to do here, and they agreed. It wasn't just me also, it was just a... Uh, you know, conversation, and I said, a basketball shoe, because a basketball shoe prior to Michael was a tennis shoe. We all know that from that generation. There were no basketball shoes. They were, we wore tennis shoes for everything. My thought, through these kids helping me and me visualizing this, my thought, well, the basketball shoe is going to be a fashion shoe. You can wear it on the playground. Now you can wear it to the, the high school dance. You can wear it you know, to the street corner, where before it was a tennis shoe. We now broke apart from saying tennis shoe to basketball shoes. No one wants to go back and say they were basketball shoes, not tennis shoes. You understand, gentlemen, where I'm coming from mm-hmm. here, and that's how it evolved into, you know, Air Jordan, you know, the wings and everything. We broke away from the mold. We sold a basketball shoe that was a style shoe, and that's where it is today. Obviously, it's 10 billion colors and. So it, it did well.
2: <laughs> so if style was part of it, college was the first big prong of the strategy. Jordan and the NBA was the second. The third was paying AAU coaches, summer league basketball mm-hmm. coaches. Now, there had always been sort of skullduggery in recruiting, but paying AAU coaches really changed everything. In the film, Armin Katayan, the journalist, puts it this way, Sonny turned on the spigot. Sonny was there to move the money. From there, that's where the corruption started. Now, my impression has always been that you treated the players with dignity and respect, and you shielded them as, much as you could from predators, but you couldn't stop the dam from breaking, and the adults that you put your trust in and handed them all this money didn't always behave particularly nobly. Um, I, I kind of look at your career now that you've sort of switched over and sort of gone after some of these elements, You're kind of like the J. Robert Oppenheimer of, of basketball. <laughs> um, I mean, how do you evaluate your role in what happened that, that has been unsavory?
3: Well, I don't, I don't believe anything is unsavory, because because what, what no one wants to admit to, that if you go, go to the 90s, and I made those statements, and Armin you know, articulates them well, and he believes that these things happen. I understand the logic behind the statements. What I never understood was, did we think that the basketball was a virgin before 1991, before AAU basketball came in? See, the problem with shows like this that have a, an obligation, and a duty to tell the public, what basically happened, see, I refuse to accept that in the sense that We had the greatest gambling scandals in the world in the 60s, and the 70s. The University of Kentucky, everybody, all you guys are old enough to remember, you know, the point shaving. All the way up to Boston College, we had high school coaches on the take. They were making as much money as the kid that they sent to various schools. And I'm not going to go into names. Some of these people were dead. But it's ridiculous to think that kids weren't and, and, and people weren't doing things. What I did was bring it in the open. So that, that's the difference between what I did, and I'm not putting a halo on my head. I started this business. However, it's interpreted is up to the beholder, okay? But I say basketball always had a shady side to it, more than any other sport. You can't erase yourself in the gambling scandals that happened under the guise of the greatest coaches in the world, all the, the Claire B's, the Adolph Rupps. I mean, there was all kind of this crap going on in Bradley and all these schools. But we seem to you know, drop that subject, and then we go to corrupting basketball to AAU basketball. There wasn't even a term AAU basketball until it all happened when I left Nike to go to Adidas. I basically was competing against myself because I wanted to help Adidas go somewhere in the ballpark with with Nike. It was a business move on my part. But I did pay AAU coaches. You know, the unsavory characters that may or may not have been developed in AAU basketball we're the same umbilical cord connection to the unsavory characters that had been involved in basketball prior to. Sure, the
2: runners and the agents and the street hustlers, well, street they, agents.
3: They've been there forever. I'm going back to, you know, high school coaches. I mean, I don't want to go with the names, but anyone with knowledge of basketball, there are certain schools in certain states that sent the same kids from their teams to the same schools. I mean, my, my nuts. Now, are there guys who did bad things? Are there guys who think, you know, didn't turn Yeah, there are. But there have been. And you know what? They still are today, aren't they? I mean, it's interesting to me.
4: Did you always think that paying the coaches was wrong when the players weren't getting paid? That if it was possible, you would have done the reverse?
3: No, I didn't, I didn't think that. I didn't think that until probably the 90s, when the Fab Five made me start thinking about it. And I'll never forget, they were, in a, they were playing, I guess, North Carolina or whatever, and they were in the NCAA championships or whatever. And I, I went up the steps, and Phil was sitting, standing on my right, and I, I turned to him and I said, they may be your team now, because it, it was a Nike mission team, but they were my kids. Because I knew Jalen and Chris and Juwan and those kids uh, really well. They went to my camps. They played my All-Star game. So there was an attachment. So now I see the marketing done. I believe that the Fab Five did more for marketing as an individual team than anything in the history of sports because they were the first ones to do it. They they were they were a subculture of what the world was evolving into. They they started this. So I I started my angst when they started showing those damn films, classic sports in 1996 or seven, where Steve Greenberg and Brian Baddell sold two things. I used to watch those movies. So I th- that wasn't on my mindset. Then I knew that these kids were getting screwed, and I really knew they were getting screwed with the Fab Five because we were selling, they were, I wasn't working with Nike, selling all the, all the shoes and all the jerseys. I mean, jerseys were never thought of prior to the Fab Five selling them in the, you know, in the lobby.
0: Sonny, I think you're, I think the public opinion of you and your public image has changed for the better. You're no longer on first reference, you know, the dark prince of basketball or the embodiment of uh, sleaze in basketball. I think at the very least, you've come to be recognized as one of the few non-hypocritical voices. And I wonder if uh, to what you attribute this, I would say there's so much more money in the tournament, so you can't make a lot of the old arguments. I would say that the, the we've loosened the grip that the establishment voice has had like you've only you only used to hear basketball being talked about by CBS and now the internet and other sites have pointed out some of the hypocrisies of the NCAA or maybe it's that you've changed a bit why do you think your image is now uh rehabilitated
3: well I, I don't think it is because I've been the same person for a long time but I understand your point so, to answer that to your audience I would say I think because you know I just I think I took the big leap in, in, you know, in, in when I was fighting the age limit thing for Brandon Jennings, and obviously it evolved into a band. When I walked away from everything, I mean, you know, just for the record, I, when we walked away, my wife and I in 2007, we walked away from a very, very good job. You know, I just said, no, it's the end. I'm going to do what I'm going to do now, and if never nothing ever happens, I'm going to give these kids a fair chance. But I don't think the public ever knew the true me. I mean, you know, even all the things I did, I was paid. I didn't make any money off the kids. I was paid by the companies that hired me. I come up with ideas. It's illogical for a human being in the world we live in to think that the, the problems the NCAA are having, and they're not a good group, and they never have been. The investigation should be the NCAA. Who allows them to determine what the word amateur is and who allows them to self-pay themselves off the very backs of the kids you're talking about and you're inferring that maybe some AAU guy sold them for $5 to some college coach? You know, and that probably happened. But isn't it interesting that these same people that we are demeaning, these AAU guys, are nothing more different than what the, what the hell you think the, the, the commissioners are. What do you think the, the NCAA is?
2: The university president, Sonny.
3: They're making money off the backs of the kids.
2: Sonny Vaccaro is the subject of ESPN's latest 30 for 30 documentary, Soul Man. It airs on ESPN this Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Sonny, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Thank you for having me. I hope we can do it some other time. We'd love to have you back.
2: In 1892, Sir Frederick Arthur Stanley, Lord Stanley of Preston, son of the Earl of Derby, Paid 10 guineas for a trophy to be awarded to the Championship Hockey Club of the Dominion of Canada. The Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup in 1926 became Dominion of the National Hockey League. Among other noteworthy tidbits, the Stanley Cup is the only trophy on which are engraved the names of every member of the winning team, at least for a while, because if the name of every player, coach, and executive from every team since 1892 were on the cup, the cup would stand approximately 19 feet tall, which would make it very difficult for NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman to lift it. The Stanley Cup has traveled From Times Square to Red Square, from Moose Jaw to Medicine Hat, and now it travels to Slate's New York offices. Stanley Cup, welcome to Hang Up and Listen. Welcome also to Hockey Hall of Fame curator Philip Pritchard. He's one of the keepers of the cup who travel with Stanley wearing white gloves. Hi, Phil. How's everybody today? Everybody's great. Mike Pesca, you're sitting there with the Stanley
0: Cup. How cool is that? Well, I am standing because the cup, uh, as it is placed on the table, is only a couple inches shorter than me. And I am admiring, the first thing I asked Phil was, let me find my Islanders teams from the early 80s, and I did. So all the names are engraved, as you say, up until, or starting from the present back into the 60s. And then it seems, I have never really inspected it up close. It's pretty amazing. It seems that there wasn't maybe a standardization of how they would put the names, so the higher you go on the cup, sort of like the fossil record, you start seeing more variation. And at the very top, the cup part, we see that Ottawa in 1905 beat Rat Portage. I kind of remember that series. I had Rat Portage in four, and then on the very inside of the cup, and I never knew about this, it says uh, Thistles of Kenora twelve, Wanderers eight. And on the inside of the cup are listed the names. Phil, who are these names on the inside of the cup? So you,
5: you see in there, like the Vancouver Millionaires are 1914-15 there. And then right in the very top of the bowl on the inside is the Montreal Wanders in 1907. They defeated Kenor And they were actually the first. Team to engrave the name on there, and that kind of started that whole tradition of it.
0: And so, when everyone sips out of the cup, their uh, beer, Molson, I'm going to assume, maybe Labatt, swishes around names like Lloyd Cook and Hugh Lehman and Fred
5: Taylorop. It like a Taylorop. Fred Taylorop. <laughs> you know what's what's amazing, and I, I think it it really sinks in for the guys. They've won it. Commissioner Batman hands it to him on the ice. They skate around the ice. Then they go in the dressing room, and they start celebrating out of it. And when they look inside and they see those names that you just said there, I think it sinks in them then that they're going to be part of this honorary chapter in the, in Stanley Cup. They're going to be part of the, this whole union that is known as the, the winners of the Stanley Cup, and they're on there forever. And it, it's, it's neat as you look in there, you see all the names, all the the differences of the different things, the scratches, the dents. If if it could only talk, it would be a bestseller.
2: Phil, you travel with the cup since I think 1995. Every player on the Stanley Cup winning team gets to gets to to bring the cup somewhere, um, and that is you know you talk about tradition and all the names engraved and the team names going back. And there is something that sort of separates this trophy from other trophies, which are replicated every year and go sit in a cabinet at some team's headquarters. Um, how how much does that, that tradition resonate with the players and, and with the people who touch this thing?
5: Well, you know what? Ho- hockey's made of traditions. There's the original six. There's the expansion era. There's the teams that have kept their same colors over the years, the same logos. Uh, everything through the NHL is about tradition and it's about this great game. And obviously it's topped off by the Stanley Cup, which has had so much tradition and aura about it. And when the players win it, they they understand all about that. They understand the engraving of it. They understand that they're going to be part of this brotherhood, that their name will be on the cup. Uh, They understand they get a day with it, and they get to celebrate with their family and friends. And it's all about tradition. And all of these traditions are what make hockey what it is, like growing beards in the playoffs. That's a tradition that hockey has, and other sports have started to replicate Having no teeth—that's a tradition. <laughs>
4: so you've said in um, interviews that the first twenty minutes when you show up at the house of a player who um, you know has the cup for the day, that that can be a little bit awkward. But then eventually, um, you know, you're around all day when when the fins are taking it to the sauna or when a Czech player is, you know, <laughs> drinking soup out of it. Um, can you just walk us through maybe a memorable day and kind of your role in it?
5: Well, you know what? I mean, you you got it right on there. We show up. It's a, it's a bit overwhelming for everybody. It's a bit awkward because they've won the Cup and they've brought it to their hometown, wherever that may be in this world, and, and hockey's played in 75 countries now. So you have no idea where you're going to. Uh, obviously the player's home is their home, wherever that may be. And you show up in their front door and, you know, you give them a phone call and say you're right around the corner and you get to meet brother, sister, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, the neighbors, the teacher. I mean, you meet so many people so quickly and they're all there for the same reason, to celebrate what this, this Stanley Cup means and what the player has done. And that's just, that's just the first couple of minutes of when we get there. Then the photos start happening, and the player hands it off to his dad to say thank you. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty emotional. To be with that, I mean, it's got to be arguably one of the players' greatest days in their professional life. Because this thing
0: is supposed to be like a hockey player, resilient and uh, resistant, what's your attitude towards when mishaps occur to it? Do you say, no, no, no? No, or do you say, that's okay, the Stanley Cup has lived through worse?
5: Uh, well, you know, I mean, the players, uh, our guys as the cup keepers, the owners, they're all, we all fall under the same thing, it's respect. Mm-hmm. So, mishaps, I guess when you and I are 120 plus years old, we're going to have some. <laughs> There's scratches and dents on there, and each one of them tells a story, but there is no way a player is going to let anything happen to it on their day. It's just... They won't do it. It's their friends all want to do crazy stuff, but this player has played, you know, the entire regular season. They've won 16 more games in the playoffs. They've gone whatever series they've done. I mean, they've earned that right to bring it back to their mom and dad, and there's not anything that's going to go wrong with their day if they can help it. So that from but- that end, that respect is so huge and I think it radiates around everyone around that party, that they understand when it sits on the player's front porch or whatever, and he invites the whole street to come and get a photo. Everybody is kind of cautious at first, and the player kind of has to say, "It's okay. Hey, come on up, get a photo. You know, I was great being neighbors. Thanks for being part of my life. And it's so special. And but again, I, I take it back to that word respect. Everybody has it for the fans that." Are loyal to that team or that player. They don't want to do anything that's that's a, against what it is, but they want to celebrate with it.
2: But the world is but the world is filled with idiots. So <laughs> you,
5: you always you always stand like within ten or fifteen feet of the cup. You're like the secret service but for the cup. You know what? I mean, you can you say that thing. Uh, the world is full of idiots. Thankfully, idiots are <laughs> hockey fans as well, though, <laughs> and there are great hockey fans out there and. Every hockey fan's a great fan, and they get it. And they love when especially someone they know and can relate to wins that opportunity to bring it home.
4: Okay, can I, can I ask some lightning round questions?
5: Is this Tampa Bay Lightning, or is this just a lightning round? It's just the okay, lightning round. Enough. But yep. I might throw in
0: some okay, Tampa yeah, questions. Maybe some Minnesota uh, wild
4: cards, all that. <laughs> 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 all right, Phil. Has it ever been dropped from a moving vehicle? Uh, no. Has anyone ever thrown
5: up in the cup? No. Who's responsible for the worst dent? Uh, you know what? There's a dent on there that some of them we can't get out, That unfortunately they happened. George Peros, had happened on his day. Uh, it wasn't his fault. Responsible was the photographer because they asked George to take a step back on a stage and there was no stage. Ooh. George felt awful. Uh, the dent, we can't get it out. The silversmith can't get it out. It's still there. And like I said, if it, it could talk, it would have some great stories. <laughs>
0: it would have some anti-George Perro
4: sentiment. No, no. George George is awesome. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. Uh, Mike, if you put your ear up to it, do you hear the ocean? Hold on. I'm going to do it right now.
0: Okay. I'll tell you what I heard. You ready? Hit somebody, pot fan! That's what I heard. <laughs>
2: <laughs> What's your favorite misspelling on the cup? That's a good one.
5: Uh, for mine, I, I think it's the New York Islanders. There's, uh, there's no S at the beginning of the Islanders. And it, it kind of tells you about how crazy the English language is because really there shouldn't be an S in Islanders anyway because it's just a silent letter. Yeah. But I think that's what is unique about it because the Europeans all say you don't need that S anyway. So it's not really a misspelling. So, so that's, <laughs> the, that's the 80 to 81 Islanders. Exactly. They got them right the next three yeah, years. Yeah, you're, so. you're looking right at it right there. Yeah.
0: Oh, actually, no, they, so they got it right in 79-80, got it wrong in 80-81. And,
5: and the next two, they got it right, yeah.
0: <laughs> they had the name Highlanders on the cup already, and they still misspelled
5: That's it. That's <laughs> my favorite one, but in the fifth, mid-50s, the Canadians won the cup five times in a row. Jacques Plante's name is spelled different each time, and they're all there's, no, there's not a mistake on him. It's just his initial, his full name, his nickname, everything. Wh-
0: what team that is on the cup now do you wish existed in some form?
5: Wow. I'd, I mean, it would be great if it was the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association from the first winners so we could go back and talk to them to see what the game was like then and how it's changed so much.
4: All right, my, my next lightning round. Have you ever met a Canadian who did not know what uh, the trophy was?
5: Have ever met a Canadian? Uh, not a Canadian. I've, I met a lady, and she thought it was a coffee urn. And we were with Patrick Waugh on his day, and he went golfing. And it was, it was amazing, because I was standing by it, and she came up and asked if I had a coffee cup, an extra one. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. I said, but in the clubhouse, I, they might have it. She goes, well, isn't that a coffee? She had no idea what it was. Never had played hockey before, never watched it. And I explained it to her, and that day she became my best friend. She met Patrick, and she was thrilled on the history of it and that. It was in Reno, Nevada.
2: In just in the last few months, the cup is visited with Alice Cooper... It's been north of the Arctic Circle. It's been to Mount Rushmore. It posed with the Hanson Brothers. Yeah. What's your favorite weird celebrity posed photograph with the Stanley Cup?
5: How about a celebrity that would be unlikely that I thought was a huge hockey fan? Shania Twain. She knew all about the Kenora thistles and rat portage and that. Oh, wow. She is Canadian. Yes.
0: Do other sports approach you... Generally with the
5: question, how do we make a trophy that's as iconic as the Stanley Cup? (laughs) You know what? (laughs) Every time we're out near another trophy, uh, I guess copying is the best form of flattery there is. The NHL has done it right since day one. The Stanley Cup is what it is. It's 36 inches high, 35 pounds of tradition and awe. Nothing against the other leagues. They make a new trophy every year, as we talked about earlier, but you look at it and There's no comparison with other trophies. I mean, this is it. Greatest trophy in sport.
2: Phil Pritchard, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Hey, guys. It was uh, thrilling to be here. Sorry you're not getting photos with it like these guys are in this little podcast here, but I'm sure they'll send them to you.
2: Mike Pesca, any last thoughts on the cup? Any last images before we say goodbye to Phil?
0: Yeah.
5: Some, you know, early on, they,
0: you know, used to have more room to note things like one in four straight. They would say three games each. I just uh, I kind of like the older version of the cup where it could fit a little more in there. Now I guess you could have hyperlinks off the thing where they could tell you, you know, who gave up what goals. Also, very, very early on, they didn't even care about the players' names. The club's president and vice president would be listed on the cup. But, of course, some of those presidents were guys like Charles Adams where we get the Adams division.
4: Phil, don't worry about me not being near the cup because I realized... If you turn your head sideways, an empty, unplugged Ethernet port is in the exact same shape as the Stanley Cup. So it's, it's basically the same thing. I'm just going to pose next to that.
2: Fair enough. <laughs> and here in the Slate office in Washington, someone has a foam and cardboard Stanley Cup <laughs> in
5: his or her office. Hockey fans, you got to love them. Got to love them. Phil
2: Pritchard is the curator of the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's also one of the keepers of the Stanley Cup. You can follow him on Twitter at keeper of the cup. All right, let's move on to our afterballs. We got to do cup. We got to do a cup afterball name. I got some proposals. The first team engraved in the cup, the Montreal Wanderers. First woman engraved on the cup, Marguerite Norris. She was the president of the Detroit Red Wings in 1954 and 55. The Toronto Maple Leafs were misspelled and given their The ignominy of the Maple Leafs. This is pretty bad. The Toronto Maple Lees, L E A E S. The Boston Bruins were once misspelled as the Bukustkun Bruins, B Q S T Q N Bruins. What are we going with? That's when they subcontracted it to the Koreans
0: to
4: write the names. (laughs) (laughs) I like Bequistquin. I like that one. Want to go
2: with that?
0: All right. Mike Pesca.
2: What's your Bequistquin
4: I'm
0: just going to explain what went on after the Stanley Cup came through, which is all these uh, journalists at Slate just kind of looking at it with the corner of their eye. And I was like, guys, I yelled to the office, doesn't anyone want to take a picture with the Stanley Cup? And someone said, it was Ali Griswold said, wait, is that the real Stanley Cup? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which raised the question of what would be more bizarre, the fact that the Stanley Cup shows up at your workplace or someone's taking around an air Stanley Cup? So Jessica Winter, who hails from Buffalo and her, whose last name is Winter, uh, she understood what was going on. She gingerly steps up, says, could you take a couple pictures? And then the onslaught. And it just became this thing where everyone was taking pictures of the Stanley Cup. And, of course, everyone's question was my question. Can I touch it? And Phil Pritchard's answer was, no, you can't touch it. But for me, he let me touch it. Because because I guess I interviewed it well. Also, they wanted me to know playoffs start Wednesday. You guys knew that, right?
4: Oh yeah. Yeah. Josh, what's your Bucstquin Bruins? So, I am in Chicago this week as previously discussed, and I'm doing reporting for my book, which means it is time for a Josh Levine microfilm minute, <laughs> wherein I find something really weird by accident when I'm doing unrelated research in an old newspaper. I think this excerpt from an unbylined UPI story from 1972 qualifies. Um, and I will read from it now. Officials at Bowie Racecourse were having second thoughts today about the Zebu placed in the starting field for Friday's Noah's Ark International as the substitute for a camel that died unexpectedly. Other starters in the unusual race, which will be run before Bowie's regular thoroughbred card, include another Zebu, a buffalo, and a llama. So I love that line at the end. It's not that officials had second thoughts about having a zebu in a race; they had second thoughts about one particular zebu. Stepping back for a minute, it made sense that Bowie Racecourse would be the place for this innovative yet absurd and dangerous event, as Mike Klingeman explains in a 2010 piece in the Baltimore Sun, from which I will now quote at length. Uh, Bowie Racecourse was the first sports facility in the country to install a public address system in 1927. It was the first track in Maryland to require doping tests, and that was way back in 1934. It was the first in the state to launch the Daily Double in 1835. At the same time, Bowie could be crude and primitive. As late as 1927, the grounds crew used horse-drawn sprinkling machines to wet the dirt track, it took 18 years for officials to enclose the stretch and keep dogs and other wildlife, as well as inebriated fans, from straying onto the track. Klingerman writes "The buoy was a working man's venue. It thrived on winter racing, seizing the opportunity to draw obsessive horse players when other courses were closed. But Klingerman explains, and I quote, attendance and betting at Bowie began falling in 1970. Atlantic City casinos siphoned off out-of-town gamblers, and other tracks introduced winter racing. So that is the context for 1972's Noah's Ark International, which did bring a bit of attention to Bowie in the form of short wire stories gawking at the weird event. The Washington Post reported in advance that the race would include three camels, a llama, a zebu, and an owdad, a wild sheep from North Africa. As I mentioned at the top, one of the camels died and was replaced by its apparent understudy, a zebu, And for reasons that were not explained in any of the stories I found, the Oudad was replaced by a buffalo. The stories I found are not clear about whether one or two zebus or one or two camels showed up on race day. But the starting field consisted of five animals, and the species were camel, zebu, buffalo, llama. Okay, Mike, Stefan, who do you guys like to win? You should know that a camel was the six to five favorite. Camels are fast.
0: Well, can it, get going. Yeah, the llamas. I don't think they'll win, but I think they'll be within spitting distance.
4: Okay, here we go to the race recap. Down the stretch we come. One large hump. The zebu, ridden by Danny Wright, was the easy winner of the Noah's Ark International yesterday. The handler, Johnny Rivers of Camdenton, Missouri, described a zebu yesterday as an Asiatic cow with a hump on his back. One large hump representing the Morning Telegraph was the only entrant among five starters which seemed intent on racing. <laughs> Wright booted him to a decisive victory while a buffalo named Home on the Range dumped Jackie Luigi Gino repeatedly. Llama Fleece, a llama ridden by Dave Liverman, was second. That's a uh, spitting mm-hmm. distance, Mike. Mm-hmm. Walk a mile, a camel representing the Sun Papers, finished third. But Jackie Charlie Cook complained that the addition of a muzzle to the camel's equipment had cost him the race. That muzzle was applied after he bit the arm of an exercise boy. Home on the Range who wallowed in the mud during the post parade, failed to finish. You will not be surprised to learn this is the first and only Noah's Ark International. A couple of photos that I found online show a bunch of very unhappy jockeys holding on for dear life to various uh, representatives of the animal kingdom. Bowie Racetrack stopped holding races in 1985, though it continues today as a training facility for racehorses. Remember Zebu Beatty, and thanks for listening. Zebu
2: Beatty, you decided? It would be Zebu Beatty? (laughs) If we recreate the race, the Noah's Ark race, we should be glad that there wasn't like a lion and a tiger in the race. That would have made it very interesting. I'm surprised that this
0: could, the Zebu would have even been included in Noah's Ark. Just the idea of mating with a Zebu known for its fatty hump and its dewlap. Oh, a dewlap is a disgusting feature on an animal. Even if you shaved it down and gave it some plastic zebu surgery, it would just still look like a rather unattractive uh, hairless cow. This is, this is the least attractive animal I've ever seen. I'm on the page of the
2: International Miniature Zebu Association. Oh, well, they are very cute. Of course, miniature zebus.
4: All right, Stefan, what is your bequestion? Well, after the second
2: round of the Masters, Tiger Woods complained that the greens were too slow. Apparently, Tiger complains a lot that greens are too slow. Whatever. Uh, Green speed can be measured, allowing players and announcers to apply a dollop of quant to their understanding of a course. But not at the Masters, because in addition to banning cell phones from their hallowed Potemkin village of a golf course, the self-important sexist fusspot good old boys who run Augusta National also banned the principal tool used to measure the speed of balls rolling on a green... The Stimp Meter... When you hear announcers talk about greens having speeds of 10 or 12 or, God forbid, 14 feet, they're talking about numbers obtained using the stimp meter. The stimp meter was invented by a one-time Harvard golfer named Edward Stimpson, who watched Gene Sarazen whack a putt off the green at the 1935 U.S. Open and wondered how fast the greens were. He invented a three-foot stick with a groove down the center and a notch near the top, from which a ball is released by gravity when the stick is raised to an angle of around 22 degrees. To use the stimp meter one also needs a tape measure. Official readings are made by releasing three balls onto a flat section of green and three more in the opposite direction and then taking an average of the distances that the balls traveled. The idea is to help course superintendents create uniform green speeds across all 18 holes. Shockingly, Stimpson did not get rich from his invention. In fact, the U.S. Golf Association blew him off until the late 1970s when it adopted the Stimp Meter for use. But because Augusta has refused attempts by the USGA to officially rate the course, a Stimp Meter has never darkened the bent grass of its greens. Still, in 1990 and again in 2010, the founder of the USGA rating system walked the course during master's practice rounds to come up with an estimated rating. In his latest review, he concluded that Augusta's greens were rolling at speeds of around 12, almost double the speeds at majors from the 1970s and earlier. But really, who knows, because Augusta is an ass, but also because the stimp meter isn't exactly Caltech-level science. Three obvious reasons among many. One— it relies on human hands to raise the stick to the release point. Oops, raise the stick too far. Two, the bottom of the stimp meter hits the green at an angle, so the ball bounces when it makes contact with the ground. And most important, three, flat on a golf green is inexact. I watched a bunch of videos of golf geeks rolling balls down a stimp meter. No one suggested using a level to determine if the green is actually flat. Let's listen to USGA agronomist Ty McClellan. While the ideal method is to measure greens on a 12-foot level area, some
0: greens have many undulations, making finding this level area difficult, if not impossible. For such greens, using the 2x notch on the reverse side allows for testing of level areas as short,
2: as six feet. This notch is available on stimp meters produced after 2012. As numbers, the stimp meters provide zero meaning or context regarding the speed of the ball, except in relation to other stimp meter numbers. So, as long as you're propelling the ball the same way every time, you could use anything to come up with a number that says something about how fast a ball rolls on a particular green. For instance, the Pescorama. Mm-hmm. It uses air heated to 77 degrees Fahrenheit, warm, never hot to blow balls at a velocity of 118 meters per second. Then there's the josh which calmly and rationally drops balls down a six-foot-three-inch chute constructed of equal parts logic and reason. I am not the first to call bullshit on the stimp meter. A paper presented by S.W. Baker of the Sports Turf Research Institute in Bingley, England, at the 1994 World Scientific Congress of Golf. I did not make any of that up. Collected dozens of studies examining ramp angles, green slope, putting surface firmness, vertical rebound behavior, rates of backspin, ball surface friction, all sorts of variables that undermine the stimp meter. One study, for instance, determined that A virtually undetectable to the eye slope of 2.1% on a green can introduce a 6.2% error in green speeds. That seems like a lot. You know who else thinks the stimp meter is flawed? The maker of the Pels meter. Mm -hmm. The Pels meter was invented in 2002 by Eddie Pels, son of the famed short game coach David Pels. The Pels Meter is clearly superior. It looks like a ski jump, or as someone on a golf chat room described it, a Hot Wheels race ramp, from which three balls are automatically released by pushing buttons. Three at one time, if you want. The Pels Meter can be yours, Josh, Mike, for the low, low price of $585, or you can go with the official USGA Stimp Meter. It's just $110.
4: This dude claimed to have invented an inclined plane, basically. Correct.
2: That is correct.
0: <laughs> Who invented the one that uh, works for the pricing game and The Price is Right with the mountain climber? That's what I want to know. <laughs> the Yoda <yodely> Odeo meter.
2: <laughs> We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Baby and Zebu Baby, and thanks for listening.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.